Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of CastingAcross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. A few weeks ago, I had a podcast called Three Fly Fishing Things I Wish I Knew Then, and it had to do with things that I have learned in the 20 plus years of fly fishing that I wish I knew back when I started fly fishing. And the benefit of those things is that we all have different experiences. So the things that you've learned are maybe different than the things I've learned. And so the things that I didn't employ when I was a new fly fisher are things that you might still need to employ. Or the things that if you're a new fly fisher that you're going to get a leg up if you employ those things as you start. So that got a lot of great feedback. It's one of my most downloaded podcasts. So definitely go back and listen to that regardless of uh, your experience level or skill or anything like that. I think it's a, a good episode. And this week I wanted to kind of do something like that, uh, similar but different. And that's three fly fishing things I'm glad I knew then, or I'm glad I did then. Because as I thought about it, I didn't want to make it seem like you're at a total disadvantage when you start fly fishing. That when you're a beginner, when you haven't had many experiences, that you're really just biding your time until you get good. Because the fact of the matter is, is that you can have some awesome fly fishing experiences right when you start. So some of that's mindset. Some of that's kind of getting your head in the game, realizing that you're just getting started, but that you might catch the biggest fish of your life on your first cast. I know that might not sound realistic, but I mean, that's the fun and the joy of fly fishing is that some of the wonder and some of the adventure and some of the experiences that you're going to have on the front end of your fly fishing are going to be some of the most memorable experiences. The things that you're going to wish you can replicate years and decades down the line after you've caught hundreds of thousands of fish not hundreds of thousands, hundreds or thousands of fish, and you've been all over the world, you'll be able to look back on those first few experiences and just the the challenges that you faced, the adventure you had, the exploration and the wonder of those first few times you go fly fishing. And really that can be the first years of fly fishing because there's such a rapid and accelerated learning curve associated with fly fishing. Everything from learning how to cast to actually learning about presentation, actually dialing in what it takes to catch fish. All those things are great milestones that, again, there's this rapid accelerated learning curve and it's not that it plateaus, because if you really apply yourself, you can always improve your craft, whether it be getting to be a better caster or a better fly tire or understanding and reading trout water or 
a saltwater structure or whatever better and more but those first few months and years are an amazing experience so i don't want to sell that experience short so i want to talk about three things that i knew and that i did when i started fly fishing that i think were invaluable into making me the fly fisher that i am and also feeding into a lot of those great positive experiences that i had so the first thing is that I didn't fuss a lot about gear. So if you've listened to this podcast, all 50 plus episodes, if you've read Casting Across for four plus years, you know that I love fly fishing gear. I love everything from fly rods down to clothing to little tiny gadgets and fly tying tools. And fly fishing isn't those things for me, but it includes those things. So don't get me wrong. I'm not at a point now where I'm obsessed with those things. If anything, I look back at when I started fly fishing and say, wow, I got a lot done with one cheap $20 sporting goods store fly rod. It was an eight and a half foot five weight. And it even said on the blank, I can remember it distinctly, 95% graphite. So it wasn't even all graphite. Uh, it's probably graphite and fiberglass, which these days is, you know, all the rage and having, you know, fancy materials and, and whatnot. But this was a cheap fly rod, but that eight and a half foot five weight, I fished for trout on bigger freestone streams. I fished for trout on small mountain streams. I fished for bass on ponds. I fished for warm water fish in rivers. I used one tool to approach a variety of fish and a variety of fishing circumstances. So if you listen to the last week's podcast, I talk about angling confidence. And one of those areas was in technique. And Part of that is that if you get confidence in kind of how to use one tool or one rod in this instance, what you're doing is you're eliminating a lot of other variables. So I was at a disadvantage in those small mountain trout streams. I had to learn how to really cast with finesse because this inexpensive fly rod didn't have a lot of finesse in its cast. So I had to learn how to apply finesse in my cast and and for example learning how to cast so that my fly was actually presenting above the water and fluttering down rather than casting to the water if that makes sense and along with that there's a number of other techniques that i developed i had to learn how to cast incredibly heavy weighted flies for big warm water fish on big rivers in virginia with this cheap floppy eight and a half foot five weight and so i learned a lot of flexibility Today, if I were to go out and fly fish for brook trout in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, I would say, well, what kind of stream am I fishing? Am I fishing something with a lot of close-in canopies, and am I going to be using dry flies? Okay, I have a 7-foot 3-weight, and I have an 8-foot 2-weight. Now, am I fishing something a little bit more open? Well, I have an 8.5-foot 2-weight, and I have a 8-foot 9-inch 3-weight. And there's so many more permutations of that. And I have rods just that I've accumulated over the years that I can use in a variety of situations and circumstances. And I'm happy for that. I don't think that I have lost anything because I have more fly rods. But going back to when I started having one fly rod, one reel, one line, and probably only a handful of flies and other terminal gear, I learned flexibility and I learned to not rely on my gear but to rely on technique. And so as I added rods, the next one was a seven foot three weight and then a nine foot six weight. And I can still remember and the next one was a, after that was a nine foot eight weight. And, and I can remember they, they, they just kind of went from there and it snowballed. 
but what I learned was flexibility. So if I get into a situation, I'm not relying on my gear first and foremost, I'm relying on my skill first and foremost. And I still have a lot to learn, but I know that I developed those skills in those first few years of fishing with that one rod in virtually every situation and circumstance. That's the first thing. I am glad that I started fly fishing with a very limited assortment of gear, so I didn't rely on my gear, and I had to learn how to use it and how to fish. The second thing is reading. I am glad that I read, and I read all sorts of books. I still read all sorts of books, and there's other podcasts and lots and lots of articles on castingacross.com about the books that I recommend, but I learned to fly fish. I'm probably the last generation that learned to fly a fish before the internet and YouTube and that kind of media and instruction became ubiquitous. I love it. I think it's awesome stuff. It's definitely a tool worthwhile and worth using, regardless if you're a new fly fisher or you're just trying to develop and hone your skills. I have nothing against the online medium. I have nothing against uh, YouTube videos and watching somebody do something and talk you through it because that's incredibly valuable. At the same time, I think that you engage your brain a little more actively when you read. So I'm not saying that you're right or wrong if you prefer learning through reading or through watching. Obviously, I would say the best thing is actually going out and doing it and having somebody show you taking a class or getting a guide or knowing somebody that already knows how to do all those essential fly fishing things. But I think when you read, you engage a little bit more actively. I know that for myself and for a lot of folks, the uh, comprehension and the retention is actually higher if you read because you are not focused on multiple stimuli. Uh, that is to say, you're not thinking about what the person's saying and thinking about what they're doing, and you're also not focusing in on all the periphery things that are happening in the video. You're not paying attention to the scenery, for example. You're not paying attention to the person's accent. I mean, I know that might sound little and, and silly, but it's true, and it, and it holds weight. When you're reading, all you have is that person's words, and if it's a good book, if it's a, if it's a book like um, Tom Rosenbauer's Prospecting for Trout, even the L.L. Bean uh, Fly Fishing Handbook. Those are two basic fly fishing books that most people should read. And they're worth going back into if you have been fly fishing for a long time. Because as I've said, ad nauseum, if you can't explain the simplest elements of fly fishing, you probably don't know them well enough. And so going to resources like this are very, very valuable because they help you kind of put words around some very simple concepts. So back to what I was saying, by going to the library and just burning out my library card uh, back in the 90s, I was reading through these books and what I was doing was I was reading everything from casting technique. Uh, Lefty Cray's fly casting book is fantastic. It has lots of pictures, but he explains what you do with your hand, what you do with your wrist, what you do with your elbow, what you do with your shoulder, what you do with your hips, all of those things. There's other books too, guidebooks, for example. Uh, I would sit and I would read these books that would say, you know, go fish this stream, go fish Piney Creek. Go fish Stony Creek, go fish Piney Stone Creek, and and learn about those different creeks. And in my mind, I would envision what they'd be like, and I'd be thinking about fishing. And so when I get to places that are like that, I'd already have kind of this idea of what I was facing. So I think reading is an incredibly valuable tool. Now, it's not just for instructional purposes. 
the novels and literature, whether they be River Runs Through It or Robert Travers' uh, Trout Madness or John Gerock or any new book and even things that aren't celebrated, what they do is they build up that culture in your head. They build up that value of the community and all the fly fishing periphery. And so you kind of get a feel for how others do it, not saying you have to do it just like that. But you start to appreciate what others have appreciated before you. Numerous times a friend and I would have read the same book and then after fishing for a while, you know, we say, hey, this is like what we read in that Gearock book or in that um, Nick Lyons book. And it's not that their experience dictated our experience or our enjoyment of our experience or that that's what made our fly fishing but it was kind of like that steering moment it is a step or two removed from you know going fishing with grandpa and having him say you know what i really enjoyed sitting on the bank and eating a sandwich and while i fished and so for some reason you know you don't like sandwiches you don't like sitting on the bank eating anything but that moment and that experience it kind of shapes your appreciation of fly fishing and you actually say, you know what, that is kind of fun because I shared it with him. It's not the same thing when it comes from a book, but that does add some appreciation to fly fishing. And again, if it's coming from a book that's a classic, it's something that you know is shared, that you're not the only one doing it and experiencing it. And there's something kind of cool about that. So second thing I would say is fly fishing reading. I'm so glad I did it. I'm a reader, it might not be your bag, but I definitely would suggest mixing in a novel, mixing in an instructional book from time to time. First thing was limited gear. Second thing, fly fishing books. Third thing, Trout Unlimited. All right, so TU chapters are invaluable, especially if you have one that has a lot of activities. Growing up in Northern Virginia, I was spoiled. I was spoiled because I was a member of the Northern Virginia chapter of Trout Unlimited when I was very young, and then I moved to Pennsylvania and I was a member of the Cumberland Valley chapter of Trout Unlimited. Two fantastic chapters. Both of them do amazing things, and so I know that not every TU chapter has as many offerings and as many activities as those two chapters, but a lot of them do. And the one thing that stood out for me as a teenager being in Northern Virginia was the Northern Virginia chapters fish with a member program. This was my first real exposure to very small stream fly fishing. I remember distinctly driving up to this little trickle in the Shenandoah National Park thinking, where's the river? I see this ditch, I see a lot of water and rocks, but where are we going to fish? And the excitement and the enthusiasm of the guys that we were with, my buddy and I thought, where are we going? What are we doing? Is this where we have been brought to die? And we watched people catch brook trout out of this tiny little creek, crawling on their bellies, making very delicate casts using really tiny fly rods. Again, I was using my eight and a half foot five weight, and these guys were using rods that were designed for streams like this. And just watching the approach, let alone the, the fish. I mean, the fish were almost inconsequential, but seeing people approach rivers like they were commandos, it, it changed the way that I thought of fly fishing. I did not catch a single fish on that trip, but that was the beginning of my 
really my, my first fly fishing love, which is small mountain streams. And there's other places that we went with the fish with the member program, bigger waters. And it was a great way to not only see that water, but then meet people, a totally diverse group of people for all of the good things that Trout Unlimited does. And, you know, regardless of how you feel about conservation projects and political things and all of that stuff, it's an incredibly diverse group of people. You got people from across the political spectrum. You have people from different ages and uh, races and socioeconomic backgrounds that are all coming together because they like fish and they like protecting the places that fish live. And so you're not just going fishing with these people, but you're spending time with these people. So going back to the idea of culture from reading books, you actually experience the fly fishing culture when you get involved in not just sending your 35 bucks a year, but going to meetings, going to activities, going to fly tying nights, going fishing, doing stream improvement projects. This is what gets you rubbing shoulders with people, which if you want to be totally selfish about it, it gets you into more fishing opportunities. But even if that's your primary motivation, which I wouldn't say is the best motivation, you do that and you're going to enjoy the experience of being with other people that are like-minded. They might differ from you in so many other things. In, in their confessions and creeds, they are polar opposites from you. But you enjoy that point of contact that is fishing and enjoying the resource and protecting the resource. So for me, that was instrumental at a young age to be able to meet people that I would have never met before. Totally different guys. I remember one trip I rode with a guy who was a CEO of a company. Another trip, it was like a blue collar ditch digger. And it was awesome because both trips, these long car rides, we had conversations about fly fishing and about what got them into it. And we were just peppering them with questions because we were just thirsty for knowledge. And these trips and these activities, it's not just for teenagers. If you're 65 and you're fly fishing for the first time, get plugged in with the TU chapter and be humble and be ready to learn and be ready to ask questions. And you might find the wrong person first, but eventually you'll find that right person and they're going to be a great resource to help you get into and appreciate the sport. So that's three things that I am glad I knew then. Three fly fishing things that I am happy I did back when I started fly fishing. How about you? Was there something that you experienced, something that you did, something that you saw, something that you learned, something that was given to you when you first started fly fishing that really sets you on the right path? I have a lot more. I'm sure I'll do another installment of this uh, kind of episode, but I'd love to hear what you had in your first years of fly fishing that puts you on the path that you are on now. This week on Casting Across, first article was Rock Bass and RC Cola. This is a little story and actually a really different style of writing for me. I know it might not be the most exciting thing to talk about, but I tried a very different approach to writing a, an article and a story, and you'll see that in Rock Bass and RC Cola. I liked writing it. I'm actually going to do something else pretty cool with it, hopefully, so just stay tuned for that. Also, this week, tie today, float tomorrow. Three quick tying tips. I am not a professional fly tire. I enjoy fly tying, but I'm not that great at it. And one of the things I struggle with is making my dry flies look good. And unfortunately, good looking fly, dry flies are the dry flies that float. So I've found some ways to cut corners, not to say that I've stopped trying to become a better dry fly tire, but because I 
just want my flies to float until I can get them figured out and dialed in. I've come up with a few ways. I didn't come up with them. It's not like I'm a genius. These these are things that people do to help their flies float, even if you're not a great tire. So check that article out. This week's recommendation on the Casting Cross Fly Fishing Podcast is old Fenwick fiberglass rods. I honestly, this popped in my head today as I was in my office and I was just wiggling one around. I have a five foot, three inch, five weight that is about 55 years old and it's just a cool rod. So uh, Fenwick made a number of fiberglass rods starting in, I believe, the late 1950s and they made them for decades and actually they're making them again now, but they are a classic fly rod. There are so many lengths. There are so many weights. I have, again, three of them. I have that five foot, three inch, five weight. I have an eight foot, seven weight, and I have, I think a seven foot, nine inch, five weight. And they're all from different years. So they actually have different cosmetics and things like that. But you can find these secondhand for either dirt cheap, if it was a really popular model and it's had a little bit of wear and tear, or if it's in mint condition, they go upwards of a few hundred bucks. But if you like fiberglass fly rods, these are something that you might be able to find inexpensively. Or if you just like cool retro gear, the Fenwick fiberglass rods from the 60s, 70s, and a little bit earlier, a little bit later, are great rods to check out. This might be the kind of rod that might be sitting in your uncle's attic or in your grandma's basement or something like that too. And I've seen them in uh, yard sales and all over the place. But Check them out if you want a functional piece of fly fishing history. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it, a life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby, 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.